Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Specifically, climate, ESG, cybersecurity. With how companies might deal with it, we turn to the head of public policy at Grant Thornton, Greg Wallach. Mr. Wallach, good to have you in studio. Thank you for having me. And let's take them one at a time. Climate reporting. This has been something that the administration has wanted since its inception. Well, what do they ask for specifically? Right. Uh, And so that's actually what a lot of people are asking right now is give us some clear guidance on what the requirements are. The Security Exchange Commission, SEC, has been sort of teasing that these requirements are coming for publicly traded companies. The government has a different span of control and where they can affect change is through their contracting requirements. And so the government has been hinting that they will start to put these greenhouse gas emission standards into federal contract requirements. We actually have our first example of that, and it's called Alliant 3. It's a government-wide contracting vehicle, or GWAC, and that is expected to include greenhouse gas disclosure requirements. It's in draft right now, and we're expecting it to be released in April or May, but all of the materials show that that will be an evaluation criteria. Yeah, that's really interesting. Suppose you're, I'm just making this up, a reseller of some commodity on Alliant 3, and you are selling your hardware to the government under that contract, they've had a tough time getting that one out because of protests and so forth, then what is the meaning of climate and greenhouse gas emissions for a service type of organization? Do I have electric forklifts in a warehouse or that kind of thing? Well, that's a great question, and it's a question that a lot of the competitors are likely asking. We don't have any evidence. We don't know where this is going. What we do know is typically these emissions are described as scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. And we think about the typical components of Alliant 3. It's actually very buzzworthy. There are things like robotic process and automation, Internet of Things. But I like to think about data center operations. When you're operating your data center, you can make certain choices about how that data center runs, how efficient it is. That's scope one. Scope two is where you get your power from to power that data center. Scope three is a lot more nebulous. Uh, It includes upstream and downstream value chain. So when you think about the government, they are ultimately the consumer of your product or service that you're producing. Do you have access to how the government is using your service and what the greenhouse gas emissions are associated with that usage? No one knows right now. And certainly there are certain programs within the government that are classified, so your downstream user may not be able to provide you any information about how they're actually using your service. Right. And then the question is, how will that figure into contract award decisions? Because if the government has something it needs to get done and the best technical proposal at a good price, well, we don't like the fact that they have a gas stove in the company kitchen, then would that disqualify a contractor? I mean, that's unknown too, I'd probably fair to say. What we do know is what the GSA has provided us, and they've told us that these scoring criteria are going to amount to about 4% of the overall scoring for the contract. So it's not an overwhelming number, but it's still significant. And as we all know, these contracts tend to hang on pretty tight criteria. So 4% would be enough of a motivation, I think, for companies to want to understand where they are as far as the 
the greenhouse gas emissions, certainly those things that they can control, which are those scope one and scope two emissions. Right. Well, maybe we can get them down to 3.75 and it won't be so bad. (laughs) We can only wish. But in any case, it's a huge compliance exercise too, isn't it? That's right. And I think that's the other piece that's uh, really important here is that business does not like uncertainty. Generally, we're okay to comply with requirements as long as they're defined for us. This is one that isn't currently defined. And so it's untested. We don't have an opportunity to say, is my criteria going to meet that 4% threshold so that I'll get the maximum possible points on this award? We don't know how that scoring is going to take place. And I think that level of uncertainty is causing a lot of confusion and, frankly, agitation within business that are just trying to do the right thing and score as highly as they can on these important contracts. And probably fair to say that not too many contracting officers really understand it either. I don't know how they could because we don't have any cases that would show how this is going to be evaluated. And again, the Alliant 3 is is one of the first that we're seeing. I'm expecting more. Bear in mind, though, that we're in a presidential election year. So this is one of those issues where the candidates differ. Republicans and Democrats differ. Democrats tend to be more focused on environmental regulations, Republicans less so. We saw that in Congress over the summer, but both President Biden and whoever the Republican candidate would be have expressed very different views in this area. So what does that mean for future government contracts? We don't know. We do know that most government contracts have multi-year. The Alliant 3, as an example, is a 10-year contract vehicle. So how does that then extrapolate into the future? That remains to be seen. We're speaking with Greg Wallach. He is head of public policy at Grant Thornton. And let's turn to the ESG, kind of the country cousin of the climate question that covers more things. ESG, refresh our memory, stands for? Environmental, social, and governance. Right. And so governance means do the unions have a say in your operations? And, and Governance is more related to how you oversee your operations, and that could include the composition of your board. There are a number of elements that are, again, fairly undefined. So environmental, at least, there are some scientific standards that you might be able to point to. The social and governance elements of ESG are much more qualitative than quantitative. And so, again, those standards become very fuzzy on the edges and, frankly, haven't really been very well defined to date. And out in the greater commercial marketplace, there have been some leading financiers, leading company heads that have pushed back against ESG because and there's some evidence that ESG-oriented companies do worse over the long haul for their stockholders than otherwise. I think that's considered debatable and you have arguments on one side or the other, this is where part of the issue is, is what are the criteria we're using to measure these entities? And one could argue that if you were to use these ESG standards, perhaps those companies are faring better because they're scoring better on these larger measures. If you're looking at pure financial measures, maybe the scoring criteria is different and you would evaluate the company differently. We don't have a common yardstick right now. And so the purpose of most of these disclosures is to educate the consumer. If the consumer is the government or the consumer is an investor, someone like you and me buying stocks in a company, the premise is we need to know more about these companies. But if we don't have a common standard, then we can't do an apples-to-apples comparison when we're making those decisions. Sure. So that, again, a remains-to-be-seen type of thing, how this will fall out in detail. And then, of course, we know that the cybersecurity reporting provisions are coming both via GSA and CISA on one side, 
and then the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program on the DOD side. And there's some similarities between the two sides. They're not identical, but cyber reporting is definitely coming. And there the government has a clear interest, I think, relative to the other two issues. I'm glad you brought that up because those of us who operate in this space are using some of that history to guide what we imagine will happen in the future. So when we think about FedRAMP or we think about CMMI, we can see how those programs were rolled out. It's reasonable to expect that when we're looking at environmental standards, maybe a similar type of a framework would be used where there will be large company requirements and small company requirements, third-party assessment entities, but we don't know. And so right now it's all speculation. So really then companies have an existential thing to think about. So this sounds like all of these reporting requirements coming is not just simply your federal division or if you're purely federal, it's not just your business development or your capture people. It sounds like this is an executive suite concern. That's exactly right, Tom. And when you imagine many of these entities aren't just contracting with the federal government, they might be publicly traded. So you're talking about the SEC's disclosure requirements, which may be different. Some of them do business in foreign countries. European standards are different than what are proposed in the United States. So it's a real mesh of compliance requirements and companies are able to do this. It's technically feasible when you imagine it, but you don't know how if you're not given those criteria. And it also has the effect of possibly saying to some companies that would like to be in federal, and the federal government is from all quarters saying it wants new suppliers, new innovation, but some people might say, this ain't worth it. It creates barriers to entry, to be sure. And I think when you look at the stated desire to have more small businesses engaged in government contracting and then these enhanced requirements, those things can contradict each other. And so I think a lot of businesses are looking at what will this mean for subcontractors? So are these flow-down requirements? And will there be different thresholds? So large business versus small business requirements? Again, we don't know that right now. And then there's the possibility of a complete swing when the election happens and there could be a different administration from a different party. Nobody knows, but that could result in a lot of this being switched. That's very true. And everyone's looking at the presidential election. But if you're involved in this particular issue, this is one where there is a sharp contrast between the candidates and the parties as far as how they treat greenhouse gas emissions. Well, I guess if you want to watch something less stressful, maybe look for train wrecks. (laughs) Greg Wallach is head of public policy at Grant Thornton. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Tom. Pleasure to be here. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? 
Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
What do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program, she even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.